Revelation chapter 1. I heard that, Marcia. You're so excited. I'm good. All right. So I thought it was her. No. Anyhow, um, so I'm like, wait a minute. She's not even in here. That's how loud she is. We can hear her from children's minute. That's how loud Marcia is if you know her. All right. Men, if you were at the men's retreat, you should have your journal and your Bible and a pen. The rest of you, I hope you pick up that habit as well. Here's what I told all the guys last weekend. Every time I go somewhere where someone is teaching the Bible, I always take notes. Uh, whether it's here and, and other pastors are here or we've had guests come in, I always try and capture what I hear others reveal through Scripture, trusting that the Holy Spirit speaks through them and that we always want to capture that and grow. And that's, that was our calling on our men last weekend, was that they would rise up to be the men that God has created them to be. That they would become leaders in their homes and leaders in the church and that they would, they would rise to the challenge of being a biblical and godly man. So uh, today, a couple things. We're going to start the book of Revelation. We do a little introduction to that. Um, and we're going to take communion. We haven't taken communion together as a church in a while. And so we will be doing that. <clears throat> so I'm going to give you some starter ground rules for Revelation. I know there's been a lot of anticipation of this. We've talked a lot about it leading up to it. If I could encourage you to do anything as it relates to the book of Revelation, it's forget everything you've ever hear, heard. And I don't mean because what you've heard may or may not be right or wrong. Just set it aside for a minute. Just set it aside for the next several weeks as we work through this. Let the text of the book speak to you, right? Let the Bible actually do its job and speak to you. There's a lot that goes on out there. I got some quotes for you. And so I put, the uh, first note is like, just put aside the idea, set aside the idea that Revelation is not understandable, right? Anybody feel like that? Feel like, like this book is just super hard to understand? Okay, I know more of you feel like that than the one person who put their hand up. But set that aside. G.K. Chesterton, a famous Christian uh, theologian, he said, though St. John the Evangelist saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his commentators. The people that have written about Revelation saw crazier things than actually John who saw it did. That the ideas that have come out of this, especially over the last 200 years, have been odder even than the things that, things that we will see in Scripture. John had neither a newspaper nor cable news. You should remember that. Right? The author of this book didn't have cable news. He didn't have a newspaper. He didn't use either one in trying to understand what this book says. Thomas Schreiner, a commentary writer, says the most important background for interpreting the book is not the newspaper, but the Old Testament. For Revelation is infused with Old Testament witness. Hence, the fundamental reason some interpreters go astray is that they don't anchor their reading of Revelation in the Old Testament. All the images that we see, or almost all at least, that we see in Revelation already exist in Scripture. And they're either defined for us in Revelation or they're defined for us in the Scriptures that gave them to us. So number three, so set aside the idea that it's not understandable, set aside the idea that it has to match the newspaper or cable news, we're not trying to find the meaning for it in our culture today. Remember, this book's been around for 2,000 years, it has always had meaning for the church, even before a newspaper, we can trust in that. The third thing, we're not looking for a new revelation. The message of Revelation 
was thoroughly biblical and understandable 2,000 years ago. In fact, it doesn't even add new biblical themes. One theologian said, there is nothing new in Revelation. Take that in for a minute. He says, there is nothing new theologically in Revelation that does not already exist in Scripture. Now, I haven't been able to go line by line and prove that to be true, but I can tell you, I've taught this will be the third time teaching through this, and in the study that I've done, I can't think of a single thing that is new in Revelation. The way it's put together takes all the Scripture and puts it together but the imagery, the theology, the teaching is not new. That all of it is consistent with all of Scripture. So if we can just start there as we open the pages of Revelation, and if you're completely unfamiliar to the Bible and have no idea why I'm giving this premise, good. You're in a good place. You're in a good place to see the words without already having a lens by which to see it. And I think if we could all do that, if we could just show up and say, okay, God, what does it say? And bring our Bibles and jot down some notes because there are going to be, this is going to be one of the more important books that where we learn something on one week, three weeks later, it will matter. And so having good notes will really, really serve you well. All right, here's a main idea for today. Jesus speaks to the churches. So Jesus reveals both himself and his message to bless churches so they will hear and obey. We'll see that in verse 3. Obedience implies the understanding and ability to live it out. If you are called to obey something, then the implication is that you must be able to understand it so that you can obey it and live it out. Fair? Can't give you something that's a puzzle and go, now act on it. We can't give you something that is completely not understandable and tell you you need to be obedient. And so if you are called to obey, then it must be understandable. So Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. Here we go. Ready? Okay. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him, gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. So let's give a little definition. Revelation means to reveal something that may not be understood currently, right? Just to reveal something to you. So what God gives to Jesus that he can reveal, he's going to reveal through his servant, his messenger, to John, right? John was one of the 12 disciples, one of, we could arguably say, one of the closest friends to Jesus while he was alive. We know a lot about John, not because only because the gospel authors write about him, but because he is a gospel author. He is a part of the story, a part of the journey, and then he goes on to be an early church or first century church leader. In fact, he outlives the rest of the apostles, the rest of the 12. And he goes on to write four more books. So after the gospel that bears his name, the gospel of John, then also he writes 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. He writes as a fellow elder and pastor to churches. And then after being persecuted for his faith, and as church history would teach us, he was boiled in oil. Uh, in an attempt to kill him, and somehow miraculously lived. And when that happened, the people in power were so freaked out that he didn't die that they exiled him to an island called Patmos where they would put criminals on this island. So John is one who has watched all of his closest friends and those who were the closest disciples and students of Jesus, he's watched all of them be executed for their faith. 
that he has outlived them and watched all of them, even the newcomers like Paul, the apostle, who wrote half the New Testament, has come to faith and to become a follower of Jesus, became a leader in the church, and then gave his life for his faith. And then John has been beaten and arrested, and then his life has been attempted to be killed many times. He's even been tortured and boiled in oil. Just think on that one for a minute. And when that didn't kill him, he was exiled to an island as a criminal, all for the sake of the gospel. So this exists in the first century world of the church. And in the first century world, near the end of the first century, when Rome was at its peak and Caesar Domitian was persecuting Christianity, this is when it's written. They'd already been through Nero and others who had been persecuting the church, and Domitian takes it to a next level. These are the Caesars that used to impale Christians and light them on fire to light their gardens. When I say Christianity was persecuted, I don't mean you were told to wear a mask indoors to church. That doesn't really qualify. You with me? Or, oh, you have to meet outside on Sundays. That's not persecution. He was literally impaling Christians and soaking them in this thing that would keep them lit and light his garden. Again, I want you to take that level of evil in. That's what the church was enduring. So when we get to places where Rome is being called out in the book, it's actually because Rome is being called out in the book. Because Rome was persecuting first century Christianity. And John identifies himself as a fellow struggler along the way with them. So Revelation, to reveal, apocalyptic genre. When you hear the word apocalypse, you can even look it up in a dictionary nowadays, and it will talk about a final struggle or an end. That's not what apocalyptic genre means. That's not even what apocalypse means. Apocalypse actually means revelation. It's been used so many times to talk about this final climax of the end of the world that the definition has shifted to this. It's actually not what it means. Apocalyptic genre means... It is revealing something, and it is using heavy imagery. That's the idea. So we're going to see a heavy use of imagery, which is where things become challenging to start figuring out. But here's what's easy. It says the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the subject, and Jesus is the messenger. Jesus is the main subject of revelation. And Jesus is also the messenger. So verse 1, back to the middle of that. He, meaning Jesus, made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. An angel, the word angelos in Greek, literally can be translated either angel like you think of, or I don't know what you think of, but like spiritual being. Or it can be translated messenger. Literally, if you sent a messenger, you sent an angelos, right? Same word. Could be spiritual, could be normal. This, in this case, obviously is spiritual. But the point is that this is a messenger of God. When God delivers a message, he uses a messenger. In this case, he uses an angel. Jesus is delivering this message about himself, and he is the messenger, and he's delivering it through his angel to John. But it says this, he, Jesus, made it known by Made it known implies what? We can understand it. 
He made it understandable as he delivers it to John. So again, John's context matters for us. We've got to go back 1900 and roughly 25 years. We've got to go back into the, to the 90s AD. And we've got to understand the struggle in the first century church that is being written to. And we've got to understand that the author of this has suffered and been persecuted greatly for the sake of the gospel. And that inside of this world that is not just hostile, like I would say the words that American culture is hostile to Christianity. That Christianity is not the favorite thing that culture has, right? That there are, there are pockets, but we're still free. We're free to do this. It's not like we don't have a sign on the front of our building. As Yvette said earlier, people are like, oh, I didn't know a church was here. Well, okay, but it is, and we have a sign. We have a website, and we're here every Sunday, right? So we are free to do this. So we don't live in a world, thank you, Jesus, that we can't do this, right? Again, if you panicked over meeting outdoors, you would really struggle if Christianity was illegal, right? They lived in a climate, in a culture where Christianity was illegal and Christianity was persecuted. And you couldn't buy or sell or trade in the marketplace if you had been branded as a Christian. And that you were likely to die. And most of the world around you was antithetical, was, was opposite of you, hated you. And here is the reason. Because most of the world around you was polytheistic and worshipped many gods. And so if you just joined in and kind of worshipped theirs and yours, they were cool. But when the guy in charge, when Caesar himself proclaims himself to be a god, proclaims himself to be divine, and says everyone can worship whoever they want to as long as they also worship me. But you say, I can't because there's only one true God and you're not it. You can see the problem. So Christianity was persecuted, executed, often arrested and beaten. That's the culture this is written in, and that's important to the story that we're reading. Verse 2 is servant John is talking about, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So I want you to see this. John bore witness to three things. Witness is to give that firsthand account of. Right, like a witness in a courtroom, he bore witness to the things that he saw, and it lists three things. He is witness to the word of God, meaning the Old Testament. The New Testament had primarily been written by this time, but what he is talking about is the canonized Old Testament, right? The 39 books of the Bible that every Jewish and Christian person already had that obviously the first century letters were added to and gospels were added to and then revelation once it's finished. But he is writing and bearing witness to what scripture has always said, right? The Old Testament images are key to revelation. Also to the testimony of Jesus, both the person and message of Jesus. Remember, Jesus is giving this message to John through an angel. So John is there to bear witness to the imagery that he uses as he writes to the message and the person of Jesus who is giving it to him, and it says the visions he saw. So the third part of it is the visions he saw. But they are rooted in the Old Testament imagery that already existed, and the very message and messenger that is Jesus Christ who delivers it to him. 
So there are three keys to this. So we'll put this on the screen. What John witnessed. Revelation requires two keys to understanding the vision, which is the third piece, right? Those two keys to that are the Old Testament imagery, Exodus, Daniel, we'll show you a little bit later, and Jesus' existing teaching or message in the Gospels. We'll use that today too. Just kind of put that together in a passage near the end of today. So you have to understand Old Testament imagery, which is where you can understand where a lot of the modern church goes awry, right? Because a lot of the modern church isn't familiar with the Old Testament. But the Bible is one cohesive story. It starts at creation, and it ends in a brand new creation. It's one story. It is one fluid history of what God is doing in and through humanity, in spite of our fallenness and our sin, how God is restoring and recreating the world that we live in, how God will ultimately redeem and restore even the world we're on. Verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, so I get blessed just for doing this, so thank you. I like that, right? So blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear, you're welcome, right? That's you. And who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So blessed is the one who reads this out loud, blessed is the one who hears it and obeys it. So by necessity... In order to obey, we must what? Understand it. So it's not that we're taking the amazingness out of Scripture, the glory out of God preserving his word for thousands of years for us to have today, sovereignly superintending it so that we get it all in one piece. I remember Rob and I were talking this week, and we are just looking at some parts of the Bible. Like if you look at the end of Mark, there's like a note above the last few sentences that says some early manuscripts don't have this. And I, I remember telling Rob, I just love that they're honest about this. Like, hey, some old manuscripts don't have this, and then some other ones do. You get to choose, was this supposed to be here? I would much have, rather have human beings be honest, like, hey, we have a difference here, than try and decide for me whether they should put it in, or for you whether they should put it in. See, for me, that is God sovereignly keeping his word pure and saying, hey, listen, there's a distinction here. What is it? What's amazing is that God has preserved this throughout the years for us, that we can trust in it. So blessed is the one who reads it. Blessed is the one who hears and keeps what is written in it. And so we'll put a note on the scheme to keep what is written for, again, I'll say this over and over. For us to keep what is written to the churches in Revelation, we must believe it was understood, obeyed, I'm going to add something, and relevant to the church in the first century. For them to obey means it had to apply to them then. Does that make sense? It couldn't just be some future thing that hasn't happened yet. It had to be something that they could apply to their lives that day. Because the expectation is that it would be read aloud to the churches, which was common, that it would be heard, makes sense, and that it would be obeyed, implying it was understood and they could act on it right away. So with all that in mind, set aside the futureness, very little of Revelation is unfulfilled. Much of it was fulfilled in their day and in our day, and we'll talk about that. Again, we don't need a newspaper to figure this out. 
it was relevant to them. They had to obey it then. So blessed is the one who reads aloud. Blessed are those who hear and obey, for the time is near. Again, this is repeated. The time is near. The time is at hand. Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's like, I'm it. We're here. We're in the kingdom now. Not the kingdom fully realized like it will be one day, but we're starting the kingdom now. We're starting recreation. We're starting what is kicked off or inaugurated with the gospel. We're starting the kingdom. The kingdom will be fully consummated one day. It will be as it is intended to be one day. But we live in this space between that and that. Not waiting for a bunch of events that take place. We live in it. And that this was written to the church, to seven churches, that they would hear it, understand it, and obey it because the time was now. Verse 4, to John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace. Grace and peace, sound familiar? A lot of books tee off with grace and peace, grace and peace. Paul, every letter Paul writes uses the phrase grace and peace. We saw the exception in the last book we were in where it says grace, mercy, and peace. Still says grace and peace. Every letter that Paul writes to the churches starts off with grace and peace. And when we were in Ephesians, we talked about this. There is no peace in this world without first having grace. That the grace of the gospel, what Jesus has done on our behalf, what we can be in and a part of and consumed with in Christ, is grace. It is the unmerited favor of God. You can't earn it. You can't be good enough for it. You can't be too bad for it. You can't be rich enough or poor enough to, to eliminate you. It's grace. It is God's unmerited favor or gift to you. And when you are consumed by God's grace, when you are transformed by the gospel, when you are to be found in Christ, then you can experience peace even in this world. See, too, much of us, too many of us miss the grace part, and we're trying to find peace in the world we live in on human terms. And you will never find peace in this world apart from grace. And you will never get peace without grace. It's, it's always grace and peace. Never peace and grace. It's always grace and peace to you. Grace first, the gospel first. God's unmerited favor poured out on you first as a primary thing. And then as a result, an outcome, you can have peace. I had a conversation with someone last night, and just got to share the gospel a little bit with somebody last night who had asked a question. And the answer, trying to figure out how to say this without a question, the answer was that collectively, what we are doing is trying to seek God's best for us. Inside the gospel, inside what Christ has done for us, all of us collectively are trying to understand and live and obey and be what God's best is for us. That we would learn how to pursue that together as a, as a spiritual family, if you will. So grace and peace to you, the sep, to the seven churches. So these are, again, seven churches, real churches that existed, and you've probably all heard this, that existed kind of along a postal route. Right? They would go and take the message, and they would give it to them, and then they would go to the next one, and they would take the message, give it to them, and they all seven, and they existed kind of like, think of your mailman who goes door to door, has his route he does every day. It existed 
in these seven cities along this courier route. And so this was a shared letter to all of them. And this was common in the first century. The letter to the church, to the church in Galatia or the church in Ephesus, those letters would be shared among the early churches, especially those that had relationship with each other. It's like us. On normal Sundays, we tend to pray for a partner church, a, a, a partner uh, organization in the community of some sort. We pray for them. We don't think that this is the only church. And we, for sure, like when we pray for people to come to faith, we don't care where they come to faith. We just pray they come to faith, right? That we partner together with others. Pastor Mike and Encounter and their guys were up with our guys last weekend at the retreat. We partnered together. We partnered with Pastor PJ and, and, at Bethany Baptist and Bellflower and, and uh, Daniel Jansen up at Imago Day in Downey and, and you know, Rudy Rubio out in Linwood in L.A. We, we've got these partners that we partner together in the gospel. It is not unlike that when they take this letter from the church in Smyrna and Thyatira and Ephesus and, and, and work its way through these partnerships of churches. So a note for you, addressed to churches. So Revelation was written to churches, like Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, to the letter in Ephesus, I mean to the church in Ephesus, and like First and Second Timothy, so books we just looked at, right, written to Timothy while he was pastoring Ephesus, one of the churches that Revelation has written to is Ephesus. Like, we get a lot of stuff that goes between, well, God and the church in Ephesus, right? When Paul writes to them a letter, when Paul writes to Timothy twice as he's pastoring Ephesus, and then Ephesus is one of the seven churches in Revelation that receives this. So real recipients mean relevant teaching to them in their day. Just like the letter to the church in Ephesus was relevant to their struggles then, and just like we went through 1 Timothy, and he's addressing needs in the church that day, that's what Revelation is. It's being written to churches with struggles and issues and needs that day, right then, and in the, in the days immediately following that. In the lifetime of the people that would hear it and read it, it's being written for that reason. And so just like every other letter, though its heavy use of imagery does make it different, it was still a letter to seven churches. That's the intention of this book we call Revelation. It's a letter written to seven churches that Jesus himself personally gives a message through an angel to John. So John gets to see this, and he understands it. He was raised Jewish. He understands the Old Testament imagery, and he captures this message from Jesus that's given to him, and he delivers it to seven churches with the call to, listen, blessed are those who read it out loud, blessed are those who hear it and obey it. The time is right now. The time is near. It's right here in front of us. This letter is relevant to them then, and I would say, and us today, just like any other letter or gospel. Starting again, verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of earth. This is a beautiful Trinitarian blessing. Grace and peace to you from him who was and who is and who is to come, right? Speaking of God the Father. And again, this Trinitarian blessing is a great example of something doctrinal that comes out in Revelation that isn't new, right? The, the Trinity's always existed. From the very first three verses of the Bible, we see the Trinity at work. 
Fast forward all throughout Scripture, you get to the Gospel of John. We, we see it again. Here we are as we're opening up the last book of the Bible. And he's saying, grace and peace to you from the triune God. If that is an unfamiliar term for you, that God exists eternally as one God with three persons making up one God. Three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. The inadequate but best way I can explain it to you is like us, body, soul, and spirit. Like that spirit is that eternal part of us. That our body is that physical part, and that soul is that mind, will, and emotions that are us. That if I die, I still have a spirit that goes to be with Jesus awaiting a new body. But somehow soul and spirit are fused together and they exist in this body. But that's the only thing that just kind of, kind of helps me understand the Trinity. But it falls short because we're human. But an eternal God, one God, eternally existing in three persons. Again, go back to Genesis 1 in the beginning. God Right, And the Spirit of God, verse 2, is hovering over the waters, and God speaks. We have the Word of God, which John's Gospel tells us is Jesus before he becomes flesh. So the Trinity isn't new, and it's given to us, and we're blessed in the name of the Trinity. So from God the Father, he was and is and is to come. And then it says from the seven spirits of God, meaning the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is the only option to define this here. It can't be anything else because grace and peace can only flow from God to us. But he's writing to seven churches, and it's really an image that tells us that the Spirit exists with the churches, right? He's saying from God and from the seven spirits, or the Holy Spirit with the churches, right? The outworking, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is the church. We often see it as too individual, but the work of the Holy Spirit is creating a body, regenerating us to life in a community called the body of Christ, a local church. And so even as this is being written, it's showing the work of the Holy Spirit in these individual yet community of churches. And then, of course, verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth. So this is very Christological. This book is all about Jesus. Jesus is both the messenger and the message, right? He is the content and he is the one who gives it. So we already know that Jesus, again, this is nothing new. Like that one theologian said, there's nothing new. Well, here's, here's kind of more proof. We already know that Jesus is the word of God become flesh. We see that in Genesis 1-3. We see that in John 1, 1-1 one, one, all the way to the 14. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God, and the word was God, and all things were made through him, and nothing that was made was made apart from him. Scroll down to verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus. We already know that Jesus is the word of God that became flesh. We already know that he's faithful and true. 1 Corinthians 1.9 says that. We know he's the firstborn of the dead. That's Colossians 1.18. We did that probably back in May and worked our way through Colossians. We know that he's the ruler of the kings on earth. Acts 4.26 tells us that. So again, the way it's put together and the, the way it's attributed to Jesus all collectively may be a new sentence. But these are all doctrines that exist already. And in this case, even all that exist in the New Testament. And so it says, from Jesus, the firstborn of the dead, the cross is central to the book of Revelation. There are two facets to Jesus that are incredibly key. 
One is the cross, and one is the living Jesus, right? That Jesus is the one speaking, and we'll see that as we get into successive chapters. We'll see it next week as Jesus is described to these churches. In week five, we'll see Jesus as the lamb, looking as if it had been slain, yet very much alive and on the throne. So the cross is central to Revelation, that you cannot be in Christ unless Christ dies and forgives your sins. And so the gospel comes out here over and over and over again in the book of Revelation. The idea that God created you and loves you, designed you, made you, but that all of us have sinned and fall short of what God has called us to. Again, in a different conversation last night, just talking about how sin has corrupted who we are. That we are no longer what God intended us to be made like. That we are born imperfect. That we are born broken. That we are born with struggles, with pain. Whether that be that, that kind of deep, dark depression inside of us or that wrestling with anger or whatever it might be. That all of us are born broken because of sin. Not just our sin, but because we inherit that. And that the only way that we can overcome that is that Jesus became like us to live the life that you and I are called to live but have failed and choose to fail. But he did it perfectly and then gave his perfect life on the cross for us. That he substitutionally traded himself as a substitute for you and I, a perfect sacrifice for a very imperfect and broken human, you and me. And then he was laid in a grave to cover our sin arose from the grave alive to give us new life and that he would ascend and, and pour out his spirit on the on the church and then begin to speak from heaven to john to give him this message the, the cross is central to the book of revelation so notice that it starts off with from jesus the firstborn of the dead i just want to show you some quick verses that kind of tie themselves together, Old Testament, New Testament, Revelation. So Genesis 3, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He, notice offspring, we go from plural, like the woman's going to have children, nations, generations. He will, bruise, or he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. It's Genesis 3, that is God preaching the gospel in the garden, that Jesus will come and be victorious over Satan, all the way back in Genesis, third chapter, Right after sin enters into human history, God proclaims Christ's victory. He will crush your head. You will bruise his heel. The cross will happen. It is central to the story of the Bible. It's all one cohesive story. The bruising of Christ's heel is the death, but it is only a bruising because it is a resurrection too. That he will have victory over Satan, sin, and death. That's what God proclaims in the garden. 2 Timothy 2, Paul writing, he says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, is preached in my gospel. He says, remember, the offspring of King David, the promised one. Remember him, risen from the dead. Again, one cohesive theme, that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead, from Genesis to the New Testament and now in Revelation. Even next week, we'll see this again, so Revelation 1, 17 and 18. But he laid his hand on me, John writes, saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. The death and resurrection of Jesus stays central as the central gospel message from the, promised from the beginning of time, but central to all of the New Testament. 
Again, nothing new, same gospel, no change. Consistent from cover to cover. Starting in the middle of verse 5, it says, To him who loves us and has freed us from his sins by our blood and made us a kingdom, priest to God and Father, to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever. Amen. Right? Grace and peace from this firstborn of the dead, from him who died and lives again, the resurrected, ascended, living Jesus, who has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom and priest to his God. That's a promise that goes all the way back to the Exodus. When Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and God gives them the law and says, listen, here's the deal. You obey me and I will make you a kingdom of priests. I will make you the messengers to the rest of the world is what God tells them. It's the same thing that Jesus calls us to in the church. That when we are in Christ, we become a kingdom, a new kingdom. And inside that kingdom, we become the messengers of the gospel to others. He says, who has freed us from our sins and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. He says to him, meaning Jesus, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The worship rings out of John as he says the very words. To him be worship forever. We talked about, we talk about this a lot. But I don't know how you can come to church and, and, and hear from God, and, and hopefully you're hearing from God and not me, but that you can hear the good news about a Savior who has freed us from our sins by his death, and how at the end of a message we could do anything but, but worship him. That worship is the natural response to when God does something good for us, we are grateful and thankful and worship who God is. That we should never leave here without responding in worship. Just as John says, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Verse 7, it says, behold, he is coming with the clouds. I want you to hear that, coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him. So he's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him, all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. So he repeats himself, right? Again, you can't understand Revelation without Old Testament imagery. You can't understand Revelation without Jesus' first collection of teachings, if you will, in the Gospels. You can't separate these. It's one cohesive story. So let me, I'm going to do it this way. Daniel 7, we're going to put these on the screen. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions. Sound familiar? A lot like Revelation, right? And behold, with the clouds of heaven, same idea, there came one like the Son of Man. We'll see that title, Son of Man, used next week. And he came from the Ancient of Days, that's God the Father, and was presented before him. He was presented to God. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, the very words John just used to praise Jesus. Dominion and glory forever, amen, he says that all peoples, nations and, nations and languages should serve him, right? That all of the world will come to him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Daniel writes about Jesus, uses the same language, the clouds, the all nations, right? Here's Jesus' own words in, in Matthew 24. He says, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, same title, coming out of Daniel, 
Jesus uses for himself, son of man. Again, we'll see that next week. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Here's a third one, Acts 1. And when he, Jesus, had said these things and they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, he went and behold, two men who stood by them in white robes, these two angels, said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So Daniel prophesied it. Daniel said it ahead of time. I saw a vision of one like a son of man, one in the clouds. And he goes to the Father, and the Father gives him a kingdom that's eternal. Starts with us, goes forever. Jesus says, you will see me, the son of man, coming on the clouds, and all the nations will mourn. So when does he come in the clouds? At the end. At the final consummation and judgment of all things. And then what, is it, what happens in Acts? When he ascends to heaven. You can just imagine this one. This is kind of fun, right? His disciples are there. And all of a sudden he ascends. Now I don't know what that looked like. But I kind of went. And they're staring. And you can imagine they're speechless, Right? Jesus just ascended back to heaven in front of them. The resurrected Jesus, because that was enough to blow their minds already. He'd been dead, and then he wasn't. And then he ascends to heaven. As talkative as I am, and as talkative as Alex is, I think we'd be silent in that moment. Like, I got nothing, dude. You? No, got nothing. So they're standing there staring, and these two angels, I love this. These two angels are like, what you looking at? And then they tell him, listen, the same way he went, it's how he returns. He's coming back, and every eye will see him. Not a selected group, not just the church, not a head fake where he stops halfway and goes back. None of that. Every eye will see him. He will show up the same way he left. He's coming back to reign forever. And every eye will see him. And all the nations will mourn. Commentators have a lot of ideas. Is this because of the judgment is this because of the, what is it, is it people that are mourning that, that knew him or that didn't know him? What is it? But we know that that ties into the final return of Jesus. So verse 7, behold, he is coming with the clouds. I just want you to see, this is one consistent message. There's nothing new here. It's just being put together and given as a message. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him and all the, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. So here's a note for you. This is written for us today. Revelation takes place between the ascension and final return of Christ. We need to read and understand it as written to the church in expectation of us living and obeying it today. You're in the era between the ascension and the return. And the expectation is that you will hear and understand and obey what you are called to do in the meantime. And we'll see that call played out in the next two, three weeks. What is that call to the church today? But for today, I want you to hear this. And I want you to hear it clear. The intention is you understand that this not be a mystery. That the key to understanding has already been written that it was written by the prophets and was understood already, that it was said by Jesus and they understood. And then it was given again, same thing, 
so that we can understand that when we understand that we can live and act on it, we can obey. So we'll close with this verse. Verse 8. What are we to understand and obey today? And what will we get into next week? But for now, verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. It's the second time we've heard that. God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Verse 4 is repeated here again. But God also says, I am the beginning and the end. We saw God in creation today. We saw God preach the gospel for the first time in Genesis 3, proclaims Christ's victory over Satan. He actually isn't proclaiming the gospel to humans. He's proclaiming victory over Satan to Satan in Genesis 3, promising Christ to come who will be victorious over him. We've seen that consistent through the, the prophets. We've seen it consistent with Jesus' existing teaching. We've seen it consistent in the letters written Paul and others. And then we see it again today. And this is written to seven churches who need it right then because they are living under a persecution by the emperor Domitian right then, that day. All the other authors of scripture have died. They have been executed for their faith. And John is the only one left. He's been exiled because they tried to kill him and he didn't die. He has been preserved for this moment so that he can capture this and give it to us and tell us, listen, no matter what, no matter what happens, no matter how hard it gets, no matter what goes on, no matter who dies, or no matter if you have to give your life for your faith, he says, listen, God is the beginning and the end, and Christ is victorious. That you can live and trust in that. That you can know for sure that he is the God who was and who is and who is to come. And there is nothing outside his sovereignty. He is the Lord Almighty. And you can trust in that no matter what happens. So we'll close with this. God Almighty, we'll put this on the screen. God who is the Alpha, the beginning, the Omega, the end, is greater than your brokenness, your trials, and your pain. He has overcome. And we are assured of this throughout Revelation. God has overcome your pain. What you were born with, what you've caused on your own, what has been caused by others to you, he has overcome your pain. He has overcome your brokenness, what you've inherited, and what you've added to the problem. He has overcome it. If you are in Christ, you can be victorious in Christ because Christ has overcome. That's the book of Revelation. That's the story in the opening eight verses. We will see it expanded. We will see more names for Jesus come out of this one book than any other book. But they're all names that already exist. Nothing new here. Just like, oh, all of it makes sense now. That's what Revelation means. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. You are the one who overcame. You are the one who is victorious. You are the one who is eternal, uncreated. You have always been. You were there and you created. You caused us to be. And then Jesus, you entered into our realm. You became flesh like us. And you lived in a way that we cannot. But you did. 
You set aside everything in this world to live to only glorify God. And then you gave your life so that we could be in you, forgiven, pardoned, redeemed, made new, given new life. You, you have done that for us. You resurrected from the grave so that we could be like you. That we could find hope and peace through the grace that is your life and death and resurrection. That you are seated on the throne today, Jesus. You are God who was and who is and who is to come. And you have promised us the end. You have promised us the victory in you. You have promised us the outcome. And then you have called us to endure our circumstances here, to live through the hardship that is this world broken, marred by sin, so that others can see you in us. That's our calling. Jesus, help us to live that out. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask those that are serving communion to go ahead and come forward. If you are a follower of Jesus, you made a confession of faith, you, you've been baptized, you live that life of repentance, communion is for you. If that is not you, then I would say this communion is not for you. What we hope for you then is that you would make that profession of faith and make that stand in obedience to follow Jesus. And so as it comes around, you get to choose, is this for you, is this not for you? And I said, I lead off with that today. Because we stop, you can go ahead, sorry, go ahead. I lead off with that today because it seemed like that we had lost the idea or the sense here in the church that this meal is for the family. That this is something that those who are in Christ, that have been obedient to Christ, that follow Jesus, that is something that they do to be continually strengthened. And so we as the elders, we sat and we, we were having this conversation and we just said like it felt like just everybody was coming and taking and, and, and not, it wasn't being treated as something holy and special for those who are followers of Jesus. And so we just hit pause for a minute and said, we're just going to stop. And we've been wanting to, to come back and return to communion and do it together as a family. And the beginning today being... The revelation of Jesus to the churches felt like today fits today. The communion fits today. And so it is for you. If you're in Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're living that way, it's for you. Paul writes to the church in, in Corinth. He says, listen, he says, the way you have begun doing it, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, the way you've done it has become dishonoring to God. And then he tells them, he says, listen, Stop. Return to God. Change. Be different. Repent. Be obedient. Follow Jesus. And then return to communion. He says, no wonder some of you become sick and died. And I don't want to go any further than what it says there, but just hear that. And so all of us always are called to reflect upon our life. Are we living and as best of obedience to Jesus as we can be, flawed as we are, are we doing everything we know to be doing for Jesus and repenting of those things that are not? Another passage says, if you've got something against your brothers or somebody sitting in here, you've got something against them and you haven't worked it out with them, he says, don't do communion. He says, go and reconcile to your brother first and then return. 
And honestly, as the elders, we just felt like we had not created that place where we held communion high enough. That we wanted to give a place and some time in the middle. And so you'll hear language like baptized believers, followers of Jesus. We just begin to emphasize what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus here? Who, who should be and should not be taking communion? It's okay if you don't. There are times I abstain from communion just where my heart wasn't right. But I just thought, okay, I just, I don't know exactly what that it says in 1 Corinthians. I don't know exactly what that warning means. No wonder some of you are sick and have even died, but I don't want to mess with it. So it's okay. You don't have to take communion. But if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're walking in obedience to Jesus and you choose to do communion, here's what it means. Jesus took a meal on the night that he was being betrayed and he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. This is my, I'm going to endure your brokenness so you can be made whole. That when you're in Christ, you can be made whole. It's that victory of revelation. And he took the cup and he blessed it and he said, this cup is a covenant, the strongest word for promise you can use. He says, it's a covenant in my blood. Thank you. He says, it's a covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of your sins. A reminder in Christ that you are constantly being forgiven for all the ways that we fall short. Paul says, as often as you eat of the bread and drink of the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. So he calls the church to do this. Just as it comes with a warning, it also comes with the blessing of knowing this is a means of grace to the church. That just like food nourishes the body, so too communion nourishes by grace your spirit. And so I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite us. We want to do this corporately. We, if you're new here, we typically do this where you come forward to the elders and they serve you. But we just wanted to pause today. No music. No nothing, we just wanted to stop and take communion as a family. So will you pray with me? Jesus, we love you. We start there. Your body broken, your blood shed should cause us to pause and reflect. It's free to me, but it cost you everything. That I'll never understand God the Father watching you die. I'll never understand what it looks like to bear the sin of everybody in the world on you. But I know you did it for me, for us. So Jesus, we just reflect, we pause, we stop. We confess our sin silently to you. I know we gave opportunity for that earlier in the service. We just reiterate, God, we repent of our sins. And we welcome the grace that comes through you. The strength to leave here empowered to be different, to be changed, to be transformed. And so you blessed the bread. You broke the bread. And you said, this is my body broken for you. Jesus, will you bless this bread as we take it? Church, please take. And Jesus, you blessed the cup. You said, may this cup stand for, reminder that oath, covenant. That if we're in you, you have forgiven us. 
That if we are walking in new life in you, you have forgiven all our sin. You continue to forgive our sin. And this is the symbol, the means of grace of that forgiveness. So we bless these cups. Will you bless us with your grace and a reminder of our, the, who we are in the gospel? Church, take and drink. God, in the weeks to come, will you help us to learn how to pause without pausing this long, but how to pause each time in our hearts and our minds and connect with you, repent of sin, to pray, to invite you more and more and more into our lives as we take communion together as a family. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.